Welcome to episode 73 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Sarah Bradley, a student at UC Davis School of Medicine and a member of the AAEM RSA Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Maite Husenveld, an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and an attending emergency physician at Bonscures Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, Dr. Husenveld and Ms. Bradley discuss managing refractory shock like a rock star. Good afternoon, everyone. You're listening in to AAEM RSA Podcast. I'm Sarah Bradley, part of the AEM RSA Education Committee. We're so honored to have Dr. Hus und Welt. Pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> uh, joining us today, she completed her emergency medicine residency training at the University of Maryland and currently works as assistant professor there. Uh, she will be presenting State of Shock, Managing Refractory Shock Like a Rockstar at AEM Scientific Assembly 2019 in Las Vegas this week. Uh, she's here to give us an inside peek on her talk. Thank you so much for being here. Um, let's get started. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's great to meet you, and I'm excited. Me too. All right, so shock. We have a patient coming in. Uh, they're in VFib, VTAC. What differentials should be running through our heads? What, what's going on? Right. Well, I think the first thing is very important when we see a patient in ventricular tachycardia, either just a ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation, it's important to know if the patient is stable, unstable, or in cardiac arrest. That really helps us determine how fast we need to move and also what could be going on with the patient as well. Now, when we talk about stable patients, they will have normal blood pressure, will be talking to you and not have too many symptoms. For the unstable patients, they will be having some signs of hypoperfusion, like hypotension, they'll be confused or something like that going on, something where you might think that there's a low flow state going on. And then of course, we have our patients in extremis who are in cardiac arrest, who in which their ventricular arrhythmia has led to them basically unable to perfuse any of their organs. And um, when we think about causes of ventricular tachycardias, we can pin this down into a couple main causes. The first one would be a structural heart disease, then also genetic conditions, or a metabolic or an electrolyte abnormality. Your number one is going to be the structural heart disease, and uh, ACS is going to be your big player here. The problem with ACS when we have acute ischemia, we will have some potassium leaking out of the cells that are dying due to the ischemia. And what then happens is, is that at that border zone, because this always happens at the border of the ischemic event, you have some changes to your conduction and your refractoriness, and that leads the patient to go into oftentimes a poly polymorphic ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. Now, when we look at more monomorphic VT, uh, looking at patients with structural heart disease, we tend to think about people who have an old infarct, so no, not acute ischemia, or patients with dilated cardio cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, infiltrative heart disease, or those who have scarring because of previous surgeries. 
Now, for genetic conditions, we've all heard these before. They're in our differential for patients who have syncope, right, because they go into these arrhythmias as well during that time, which include our patients with short QT syndrome, long QT syndrome, Brigada, or ARVC, so our arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy patients. And then lastly, some metabolic or electrolyte abnormalities, but I think we'll get to that with one of your next questions, right? Yes. Okay, good. So what do we do first for these patients? Well, of course, first we'll start ACLS, right? And the main things that we'll focus on in ACLS for patients with what we call a shockable rhythm, so ventricular tachycardias, would be focused on high-quality CPR because we know that that is one of the few things that we actually know makes a difference in outcomes in these patients. Then also early defibrillation, so getting your patient on the defibrillator, putting the pads in the right place, and shocking them if needed. Another thing that we do have in ACLS now is amiodarone. Normally we load our patients on 300 milligrams with a 150 milligram repeat dose if deemed indicated. And of course, then you'll start thinking about what is going on with this patients. Why do they present it with their ventricular arrhythmia? So when do we start to deviate from the basic ACLS that we all know and go into your tricks for refractory shock? Yeah, of course, we, we have to def kind of define what refractory shock is first, mm -hmm. which would be um, there's no true like consensus definition, but what most people consider refractory is if there's more than three episodes in 24 hours of ventricular arrhythmias, or if the patient has had three rounds of shocks, a lot of times People have had the amiodarone added as well, and they're still in their arrhythmia, meaning they're still in ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation. So let's talk about double sequential defibrillation. Mm -hmm. How does it work? So we don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a really excellent question, Sarah. So what it is, though, is that normally we put our patients on the defibrillator. We put one uh, set of pads on the patient's chest where one would be more anterior and one would be more left lateral. And with double sequential defibrillation, what we do is that we add another set of pads and another actually using another defibrillator at the same time. And most of the times we'll do that more one pad anterior and one pad posterior. And the thought behind this is, is that we're adding a new vector of electricity. So we're sending another kind of direction of energy through the chest. It's a higher or a higher amount of energy that we give to the patient. And also it's, it's really hard to push that those two buttons at the same time. So it's also thought that there is an increased duration of energy going into the chest. Now, if this works, we don't really know. So when this first was introduced or if people got into this a little bit, there was a lot of enthusiastic responses with some case reports with good outcomes. But now that we've moved on from that a little bit, th there is still very limited data overall with regards to this. Um, one meta-analysis that was pretty recent had two very small studies uh, included, and they had a total of 499 combined patients, of which only 19% received a double sequential defibrillation. And the outcomes were really not significant. When we looked at ROSC, the odds ratio for ROSC was 0.86, where the 95% confidence interval did cross the one uh, midline, so uh, probably not significant. And then also with regards to survival to discharge, odds ratio was 0.69. So that was 
if anything, a trend towards poorer outcomes and definitely not better outcomes. Uh, another case mat or matched case control study was performed more recently uh, in patients, and there were with refractory ventricular tachycardia, and 64 patients were enrolled, and there were they what they did is they matched them with patients who didn't receive uh, double sequential defibrillation, and the survival to hospital admission, so the making into the hospital, was 48% for double sequential defibrillation versus 50.5 for the conventional treatment, meaning they didn't get double sequential defibrillation. So there was also no uh, difference in achieving ROSC or uh, survival to hospital discharge or neurologic intact survival. So we have two different defibrillation machines on this patient, it, and that doesn't add any harm to this patient? It doesn't hurt the patient? So as far as we know, it doesn't really hard, harm the patient, but we don't, again, don't really know because there's so limited data. But what we do know is that when one study where they looked at machines that were used for double sequential defibrillation, one of them was working fine the day of, but the next day when they checked the machine, it wouldn't turn on and it wouldn't function. So when they sent it back to the manufacturer, the manufacturer said it was likely related to the double sequential defibrillation. Since then, most manufacturers have now said if you use their machines for double sequential defibrillation, you will lose your warranty. So it's pretty costly if you break your machine. Plus, on top of that, it's, it can be potentially harmful to your next patient if you're trying to use your machine and it doesn't work the next day. So something for you to be aware of that losing this warranty is not only costly but potentially harmful in the future to someone else. So if you do want to try this, make sure that you understand that risk. We're all about weighing risks and benefits in the emergency department. Yes. <laughs> all right. So what are some uh, medications that have been studied in refractory shock, and which ones have come out on top? So for these patients, we would well, I normally consider the patients who come in refractory ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation out of hospital cardiac arrest, I, I normally assume that you would have already given your amiodarone for ACLS guidelines. There's not a ton of data on refractory ventricular tachycardia and medications. We do know that amiodarone doesn't have great termination rates in general. It only terminates 29% of your ventricular arrhythmias. So it's definitely important to look at other medications as well as if it doesn't work. One of the big ones would be Esmolol. Esmolol has been proposed to help in these patients because when you have a patient in ventricular arrhythmia, and especially someone who's been cardioverted or defibrillated multiple times, you're gonna have an increased sympathetic drive, and a beta blocker can potentially decrease that. Now, again, very small studies. What they did is they gave a dose of 500 micrograms per kilogram esmolol to these patients, and then they added a drip following this somewhere between zero and 100 micrograms uh, per kilograms per minute. And when they compared that, the patients who didn't get it, and again, a small study, 16 patients uh, got esmolol, 25 did not. They had an increase in ROSC from 16% to those who did not get esmolol versus 56% ROSC in the esmolol group. So that's wow. a, those are pretty good numbers. And then the survival uh, rates at 30 days, three months, and six months were twice as high in the esmolol group when compared to those who did not get it. But those numbers were not statistically significant, which is not surprising with so little patients. But, you know, promising data. And then another study... Uh, had 
25 patients who of which six received esmolol, 19 did not. ROSC for the esmolol group was 32%. And then for those who did receive esmolol, it was 67%. With survival to discharge in the non-esmolol group, 16%. And then for those who did receive esmolol, 50%. So again, a very small study, but pretty promising data. And it has been my go-to now in patients with refractory uh, ventricular arrhythmias to try it. Definitely something to keep your, our eyes on. Mm, definitely. Then procainamide is another medication that's gotten a lot of attention recently, especially in the in emergency medicine world. There's no data here to look at refractory uh, ventricular tachycardias, unfortunately. So most of the data I'll talk about is kind of piggybacking on stable ventricular tachycardia patients. For example, the Procamio study enrolled 62 patients with stable ventricular tachycardia, and they actually randomized patients to either procainamide or amiodarone. And determination rates, meaning the patient got out of the ventricular arrhythmia, for amiodarone was about 38% versus 67% for procainamide, so that's promising as well. And in another small retrospective study, termination rates for amio were 24% versus 57% for procainamide. When they looked at the procamio study, the patients, again, stable ventricular tachycardia had, le had fewer side effects. Uh, they only had it in about 17% versus 31% uh, for those who received amiodarone. So we don't really know if this also works in refractory ventricular tachycardia, but definitely something for you to consider as well, because we're, we're really looking at a kitchen sink situation here where you just want to try whatever you can do. Mm -hmm. We're looking at lidocaine, though. Lidocaine data is really, really poor. It's actually really poor for patients who are not refractory. So for patients who just come in with ventricular tachycardia, um, ACLS guidelines used to say, use lidocaine in those patients, but it's actually been removed since 2010 from their guidelines because the data is just not great. Hmm. So you also talk about sedation um, in your talk. What role does sedation play in refractory shock? So in the patients who, again, who are in ventricular tachycardia, they will have an increase in sympathetic drive, especially when they've had multiple attempts of cardioversion or defibrillation. Now, sedation, of course, does not play a role in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients because they're, you can't really risk dropping their blood pressure even lower if they're in a very low-flow state. It, this is really for patients who have more of a stable or close to unstable picture. We do know that decreasing their sympathetic drive by with sedation increases your chances of cardioversion being successful. So make sure that when you give your patient sedation to to cardiovert them, that you're going to have a good dose and make sure that they're comfortable and their pain is well controlled so that you uh, are actually don't, you don't even, you don't only make your patient more comfortable, but you also increase your uh, chances of it being successful. So how do you balance decreasing the sympathetic drive and not putting them into respiratory depression or, you know, cardiac depression? Is there, would you use like ketamine or, um, kind of stay away from propofol? Is there a preferred sedation drug? So there's not great studies looking at this, and even though I really love ketamine, ketamine is something that people have talked about a little bit because it does have cardiac effects as well. So my go-to is something that is quick, on and off, 
puts my patient to sleep, makes them comfortable, but is also waking them up really quickly. Perfect medication for me is Atomidate. It's very quick on, it's very quick off. You give them a, a sedation dose, and then I oftentimes add some fentanyl as well to make sure that they're comfortable. But really your main thing is going to be that they also don't remember it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I've had good success with using that combination. But there's no no good data to say one way or the other. It's just a personal practice preference. Okay. Are there any lab values that we may be wanting to pay attention to during this time? Uh, definitely, Sarah. So what you want to be aware of is that hypokalemia or hypomagnesemia prolongs your QT interval and it makes your patient higher risk of developing uh, ventricular arrhythmias. So you want to make sure that you aggressively repeat your potassium and magnesium. And in patients who are at increased risk, you might want to do this empirically because obviously you don't want to wait for about an hour for your lab works, uh, lab results to come back for you to give it. So make sure that you uh, replete those aggressively. Who are these patients that would be at risk that you would start it empirically on. Yeah, so that we'd be your patient who is known to have any GI losses, so a lot of vomiting, a lot of diarrhea, patient who are on diuretics, those type of patients you would think they would be at higher risk of uh, hypokalemia and hypomagnesemia, for example. Let's talk a little bit about ablation in shock. Yeah, so for patients who have a st more stable ventricular arrhythmia or have recurrence of this, it's really important to get your electrophysiologist involved early because these patients may be at risk at, um, maybe may benefit from an ablation, which means that we go into the patient's heart and burn that little spot that causes the ventricular arrhythmias. Of course, not for your out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patient, but make sure you involve your EP guys early. If the patient is stable, uh, keeps going back into arrhythmic events or have had it before. What about anti-tachycardia pacing? Yeah, so anti-tachycardia pacing is kind of cool. Um, it is a little bit reserved for those patients who already have an AICD or a pacer in place. Um, ATP or anti-tachycardia pacing is actually something that your defibrillator will do if, if the patient develops a ventricular tachycardia to try to break out of it before they give your patient a, a, a shock or a defibrillation. What it does is that it paces the myocardium at a rate that's faster than the tachycardia, hoping to break the heart out of that uh, arrhythmia. Now, for patients who don't have a pacemaker or an AICD, unfortunately, this is not really an option. Most of our trans the transcutaneous devices will not be able to do it, and it's extremely hard to do it with a just a transvenous floated pacer. So. That will be tricky, but if your patient has a device in place, call your representative or your EP guys early so that they can come and have a look, potentially can actually change the rate that the device is set at, and they can, at the spot, try some ATP to see if that works. Again, that, that's for your more stable patients, but can be very helpful. Lastly, what about ECMO? Yeah, ECMO is, is actually uh, a good consideration for those patients who are not stable, who will come in out of hospital cardiac arrest. If they meet all other criteria for ECMO, a lot of times there'll be a certain age cutoff, it will be a, um, you know, a limited downtime and those kind of things. But if they meet all other criteria and you're an ECMO center, consider getting your ECMO team involved early as well. Because if you put these patients on ECMO and are able to continue their perfusion. You have a little bit more time to see if you can get your patient out of the ventricular tachycardia because you don't really 
you know, need that pump function at that time if the patient's on ECMO and you might be able to have your patient survive if they, if they meet a lot of criteria to be placed on ECMO. Well, thank you so much for all of these great tips. We can definitely keep an eye on the data coming out on all these different studies and maybe incorporate these into our practice as well. So thank you so much. We're so honored to have you here and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It was great talking to you and hopefully you'll feel a little bit more confident next time you see a patient in refractory ventricular tachycardia. Know what you have in your back pocket to, to help your patient survive. I definitely will. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.